Well, last year, Christmas Day fell on a Sunday. And though this is a Christmas Eve service, we're still privileged to gather together on a Sunday, on a Lord's Day, to celebrate both the, the birth and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Two history-altering events. And today we're proclaiming both our belief in these events, the, the belief in a virgin birth and the belief in the resurrection from the dead. And these two events, without these two events, Christianity has no meaning. And our belief is pointless. And today, in a secular world, these two beliefs seems like insanity to them. Well, our text this evening is going to be Matthew chapter 1, the entire chapter. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the, was the, first, the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, 
For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this chapter in the Gospel of Matthew. Lord, I pray that as we open your word this evening, that you will give us a vision of who our Savior is, that we will see Jesus as more than a small baby in a manger. We know you have not commanded celebrating the birth of Jesus in your word, but we do this because we love Jesus. I pray tonight that We will see him for who he really is. I pray that you will open our eyes because we want to see Jesus. So I ask you to help us now. We give you all our thanks and we give you all our praise and we give Jesus Christ all the glory. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, welcome to the first annual Christmas Eve service of Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. And I I, I would like to see that this would maybe become somewhat of a a tradition for this church. I'd like to see this happen year after year, decade after decade. I know that Pastor Steve mentioned that our our Christmas uh, service this morning is, is a tradition that we have continued since 1989. And traditions at this time of year, uh, they, they bring certain things with them. Uh, they, they, they tend to shape the way we celebrate special events, including Christmas. The, the celebration of Christmas by, by millions of people all over the world each year has produced many well-known and, and a lot of not-so-well-known traditions. But traditions, they, they help us. They, they help us establish our, our values and, and our beliefs in the things that we hold dear. You know, I saw a TV commercial just recently during this Christmas season. And it was by a, a well-known retail chain. And I'm not going to mention their name because you'd all know who they are. And I'm not trying. It's nothing against them but they were advertising for their Christmas products. And the, the, the commercial depicted a family in a, in a nice warm setting and they were celebrating Christmas together and they were depicted with them exhibiting their traditions that they, they have for their family. And at, at the end of this commercial, it, it displayed their Christmas slogan across the screen. It said, Christmas is what you make it. And I thought about that. Is that true? 
Is Christmas what we make it? It seems like a very nice sentiment, especially seeing how Christmas in our culture is very commercialized, and it's a day where a lot of the excitement comes from Santa Claus and his coming. It's a day where the wonder and the awe that people experience at Christmas seems to have more to do with Santa Claus instead of Jesus. But if I were to title this sermon this evening, I would title it, Christmas is not what we make it. Perhaps due to some unusual, unforeseen circumstances, sometimes we have to make the best of a Christmas, but it's not what we make it. I believe it's far beyond anything that we could ever come up with on our own. And if we find more awe and wonder and amazement at Santa Claus and flying reindeer or getting gifts that we covet or going to fancy parties at this time of year or having these big giant meals, if we find more awe and wonder in those things, then we have missed the Jesus that is presented in the birth narratives of the Gospels. So what I want to do this evening is I want to open a window into the way that Matthew presents the birth of Jesus. And it's my hope that you will never read Matthew chapter 1 the same again. It is my hope that you will never approach celebrating Christmas the same way again and that you will have more awe and wonder at the eternal glory of God who became man and and the radical implications that it has for the universe rather than the momentary excitement of a Christmas that's tied to Santa. And if you think I'm picking on Santa and all the other things that are going along with Christmas, I'm not. That's not my intention. I love Christmas and I, and I love all the traditions and, and the, the festivities that go along with it. I'm right there with you. But I don't want to, and I don't want you to, settle for lesser joys. I don't want to stand in front of a ditch or a hole in the ground when I can stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon and be in awe and amazed by that. So I want to look at the way Matthew depicts the birth of our Savior in three different ways. First, Matthew presents Jesus' birth as the beginning of the new creation. Look again at verse 1 of Matthew. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The Greek word that we translate genealogy here is the word Genesis. Matthew begins his gospel with the book of Genesis. And it's in light, it's in that light that we should understand the beginning of this gospel. 
That phrase is only found in two other places in the Old Testament, Greek Old Testament, that is the Septuagint that we know. The first is in Genesis 2, verse 4, and the second is in Genesis 5, verse 1, and both times they're the head of genealogies. The first is the head of the genealogy of creation, the book of the genealogy of the heavens and the earth, and the second is the head of the genealogy of humanity, the book of the genealogy of man. And when Matthew wrote his gospel, the Bible that the Jewish people were reading was the Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint. So the Jews, who knew that the first book of the Bible is called Genesis, when they begin to read Matthew's gospel, well, there it is. The very first pages on the, the, the very first words on the page. The book of Genesis. It's a book of new beginnings. The Israelites reading the gospel would have known and they would have understood what Matthew meant when reading that first verse. Matthew is, is consciously alluding to the Septuagint's rendering of the genealogical lists that are found in Genesis. But Matthew, he does something differently. The difference of the genealogies that we find in Genesis 2 and Genesis 5 is that in the Septuagint, the genealogies are not connected to a personal name. But now, this new creation is. It's centered on and it's formed around a person. It's formed around Jesus. But again, look at verse 18. The English word birth is the same Greek word. Now the birth of Jesus, or now the genesis of Jesus Christ took place in this way. What Matthew is doing is he's mimicking the very structure of the first two chapters of Genesis. In Genesis 1.1, there's a, a broad overview of creation. And then in Genesis chapter 2, there's a more narrow, in-depth, and focused view at the creation of Adam and Eve. Matthew's doing the exact same thing in his gospel. First, you have this broad overview of where Jesus comes from in this list of names, in this genealogy. And then in verse 18, he again starts with the genesis of Jesus in a more in-depth and focused look at how Jesus is actually born. So the creation account we find in Genesis is starting all over in Jesus. But in the first creation account that we're all very familiar with, the man and the woman, they sin against God. And as a result, pain and strife, anger and murder, and all other manner of sin and wickedness enter into God's creation. Not only that, but every person, as descendants of this first man and this woman, are born dead in their sin. And they are enemies of God. Now God, at this point, he could have said enough. He could have just wiped out all of creation. 
But he doesn't do that. Instead, he says he's going to restore it. He's going to renew it. He's going to make it better than it was. He will remove all that corrupted it, and there will be no more tears, and there will be no more sorrows, there will be no more suffering, no more sickness, and no more death. It will be filled with new and greater joys and delights, and this was the hope and the declaration of the Old Testament prophets. Listen to what Isaiah chapter 35 says. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In this passage of Isaiah, water is coming. Water is life. Water is new life. It's a new creation. And from our regular Sunday evening services that Pastor Steve has just concluded in Revelation, we know that believers, they don't escape the earth to go to heaven. They don't do that. It ends with a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth. God will bring about this new creation and he will give his people new bodies and they will no longer suffer or weep or worry, but they will bask in the glory of their God and in the Lamb and they will have delights untold and fullness of joy as they daily behold the one who is their ultimate joy. And this is why Paul in 2 Corinthians, he calls believers in Jesus new creations. There's a new reality. Jesus' birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, it begins the new creation. Yet, it has not been completed yet. We, we live in this overlap of ages. We live in this age, and as well as the age to come, sometimes called the now and the not yet. But Jesus' resurrection is the declaration that God will certainly bring this about, and this is what it means to hear the Christmas story. God is making all things new. And this, Matthew writes, is the meaning of Christmas. Well, secondly, Matthew also presents Jesus as the one through whom the exile is brought to an end. Look back at, at Matthew chapter 1, verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 
14 generations. Why does Matthew in his genealogy go from person to person, that is Abraham to David, and then go from person to event, that is David to the deportation, and then go from event to person, that is the deportation to Christ? Why aren't they all people the way we would expect them to be in a genealogy? Or why does Matthew provide this extra information that we find in, in verse 2 and 11? Look there. He writes, And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And again in verse 11. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers. Why does Matthew add this information at these points? Or why does the angel of the Lord say that the child's name will be Jesus, and then add, for he will save his people from their sins. Well, it's because all of this points to Jesus as the one who will bring God's people out of exile, and he's going to restore their relationship with God. In verses 2 and 11, the phrase, and his brothers, comes at a point where there is a question of rulership followed by exile. In each case, the question is, which brother will rule? Regarding Jacob's son, is it going to be Reuben, Judah, or Joseph? Or with Josiah's sons, is it going to be Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, or Zedekiah? In each case, Israel goes into exile, into Egypt at the time of Judah and his brothers, into Babylon in the time of Jeconiah, and his brothers. So, even in this list of names, Matthew is pointing to times of exile. And in verse 17, he's, he's really drawing or bringing our attention to that significant event of exile. But notice, Matthew never says that the exile ended. Even though the Jews have returned to their homeland, they're still in exile. They're still under foreign rule. But the genealogy moves from the event, the Babylonian exile, to Jesus, who is so named because he will save his people from their sins. And the Old Testament prophets, they prophesy that the end of the exile is going to come in two stages. First, physically, they would come back to their homeland. And second, spiritually, with the forgiveness of sins and the release from their condemnation and death. The first had happened under Cyrus, the Persian king. But the second had not happened until Jesus came. Jesus brings an end to the exile and it's only because through him that there is forgiveness of sins. We read in, in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 19. Listen to this. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert to drink to my chosen people the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. 
And then further in verse 25 of this, ver- this chapter, he says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. The end of exile, the forgiveness of sins, the new creation that all comes together in Jesus. And if this wasn't amazing enough, God through the prophets promised that when this does happen, the outcasts, the foreigners, the Gentiles, they will all be brought into his covenant. And Jesus will bear their sins as well. We are all recipients of this promise if you have believed in Jesus. All of us are born sinners, enemies of God and antagonistic to him. We want to do things our own way. We want to have Christmas our own way. We want it to be what we make it, right? But this is why Matthew's birth narrative is critically important. There's only one way that we can have a relationship with God restored, and that's through Jesus. It's only through Jesus that our sins are forgiven. It's only through Jesus that our own personal exile from God can end. It's only through faith in Jesus that we become a new creation. But how how does that happen? It's because Jesus, he bears the wrath of the Father for those who will believe in him. He is pierced for our transgressions. He is bruised for our iniquities. And in exchange, we are forgiven of our sins. We are declared right before God. We are declared not guilty by the standards of God's law. The angel of the Lord said, his name will be Jesus. That's a name that's derived to mean salvation or Yahweh saves because he will save his people from their sins. He will end the exile, inaugurating the new creation. And this, Matthew writes, is the meaning of the Christmas story. Well, thirdly, Matthew also teaches us that Jesus is God returned to his people. Look down at verses 22 and 23. We read there, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, I'm sure most of us might recognize that as a quotation from Isaiah, chapter 7, actually. But there's a broader implication for this. When God created mankind back in Genesis, he didn't do it to drop them off and leave them, and then run away. When God first made man, there was communion. 
There was fellowship between the creator and the creature. God dwelt with man in the garden. But they, then they sinned. Adam and Eve fell. And that relationship was broken. And they were cut off from the presence of God in the garden. And they were forced to go east. But God didn't leave man alone. He continued to dwell with his people in various ways throughout the Old Testament. Uh, he guided them in a pillar of, of a cloud by the day and by a pillar of fire by night. He was with them in the tabernacle in the camp and he was with them in the temple in Jerusalem. But again, the kingdoms of Israel and Judah sinned against God. So in Isaiah, we read this quotation that we find in Matthew 1. So what's going on in Isaiah chapter 7? Well, at, Judah is under attack there. Syria and Israel are going to Jerusalem, and they're going to wage war on it. And everyone is scared. They need help, and they need deliverance. And the Lord sends Isaiah and his son, She'er Jashub, whose name means a remnant shall return. Isaiah and his son are going to tell Ahaz, the king of Judah, that the attack on Israel, the attack on Jerusalem, is going to fail. The city of David will not fall. And as a sign that this is true, God gives Ahaz a sign that a child will be born. A child who is going to be called Emmanuel, God with us. But why does he give him this kind of a promise? Well, it's because it's a reminder that Yahweh is covenantally faithful and that he is still for his people, that God is still with his people, and that he will deliver them from their aggressors. But God gives a condition to Ahaz. He tells him that if he won't believe, he will not last. He will not stay in the land. And just like Adam, Israel sinned against God. And just like Adam, they were exiled out of their land to the east. And they were cut off from God. They were cut off from the dwelling place of God. The temple was destroyed and the dwelling presence of God was gone. But Israel was not left without a promise. A promise that Yahweh would return to Zion to dwell with his people again. Listen to Isaiah chapter 52 beginning in verse 7, it says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the nations of the earth shall see the salvation 
of our God. The promise is that one day that the, the Lord will return. And when he does, all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. But we're also told in other places in the Old Testament that when the Lord does return, there will be a forgiveness of sins. There will be an end to the exile. There will be a defeat of evil. And there will be a new beginning. So when Matthew says that Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah 7, he's drawing from a much broader promise than Ahaz. In Jesus, Yahweh is to dwell amongst his people. Jesus is God in the flesh. John makes this explicitly clear in his gospel. Verse 1, or verse 14, as we heard this morning. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Again, using a word that means tabernacle. Just as God was with the Israelites in the wilderness, in the tabernacle, John writes, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father. So the glory of God has returned to dwell among his people in the person of Jesus. Because so great is the problem of evil and so great is the problem of sin, your sin and my sin. So great was the chasm that separated the creator from the creatures that no human being could bring about that restoration. Instead, God himself the, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, the one through whom and for whom all things were made, had to enter into his own creation. And this, Matthew writes, is the meaning of Christmas. That God himself will dwell with his people in the person of Jesus to once and for all bring an end to exile through the shedding of his blood for the forgiveness of sins, calling to himself all the outcasts and all the foreigners, all the Gentiles, and everyone who will believe in him. That they will be saved and they will be a part of his new people and that they will dwell with him in the new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things are new. And that, Matthew writes, that is what Christmas is about. Christmas is more than celebrating the cute little baby in a manger. Christmas is the declaration that the king has returned. There is reason to be in awe and wonder at Christmas time. But it's not because of a man in a red suit is coming to town. It's because the Son of God has come. The Son of God entered into his own creation. The Son of God is disrupted the very fabric of space and time, not by declaring an end to it all, but by inaugurating the future age. If anything leaves you breathless this Christmas, let it be what you see in Jesus 
in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 1. I hope you will never read this chapter the same again. It's not merely about who Jesus descended from or who is in his family tree or about the historical events explaining how he was born. Rather, it's about the radical implications of God returning to his people. So, what should our response to all of this be? What should our response to Christmas be? To answer that, let me move from Matthew chapter 1. And let's go to Matthew chapter 2. There we find that the Magi from the east have seen a star... They come to Jerusalem to look for the king. And when they see that the star has stopped in the place where Jesus is, we read in Matthew chapter 2, verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. This is our response. Let us rejoice with exceeding joy. On Christmas morning, many who do not believe in Jesus will rejoice in the gift that they got because it's something that they wanted. We who are in Christ will rejoice because we receive the gift that we did not deserve. True, everlasting, unfading, eternal joy is only found in Jesus. Have you ever noticed how many Christmas carols speak of joy? Joyful, all you nations rise. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. It's about joy. And the only appropriate action to beholding the glory of the Son, to stare into the, the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus and being full of joy is to fall down and worship the highest activity that we can participate in. To fall down and worship our King, our Creator, our Redeemer, our God, who humbled Himself to become a man and became obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let me close with this. When I began speaking, I said that we are in a conscious celebration of both the birth and the resurrection of our Savior Jesus. And I want to close by looking at Matthew 28 now. And I won't read the whole chapter. But I want you to notice something in Matthew 28. There, Matthew 28, Jesus is risen he is the first fruits of the new creation. The exile has ended. 
redemption is accomplished and sins are forgiven. But in Matthew, again, in some ways, he parallels this last chapter as a new birth narrative. Notice the following things and, and compare it to what we see in, in Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 1, Jesus is born in a supernatural way. And in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus is raised to life in a supernatural way. Well, secondly, the Magi who rejoiced with great joy at Jesus' birth and fell down and worshipped him, in Matthew 28, verse 8 says that the women left the tomb of Jesus with fear and great joy. And what do they do in verse 9? They took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. And thirdly, as I hopefully have shown you tonight that Matthew 1 depicts Jesus as the fulfillment of the end of exile, the forgiveness of sins, and the inclusion of the Gentile nations into God's people. And in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Jesus commands his disciples to do that very same thing. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And finally, Jesus in chapter 1, Jesus is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, it says, I am with you always. I pray as we celebrate Christmas, as we celebrate the birth of our Savior, that we will remember Christmas is not what we make it. It's beyond anything that we could have made it to be. It is the declaration again that the King has returned. And the cosmic implications of that cannot help but make us stand in awe and wonder. Joy to the world. God has become man and Jesus. And he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words. We, we thank you so much for them. When we think that even in this passage of Scripture that we've perhaps read very quickly at times because it's a list of names, Lord. We see, we see in it who our Savior really is. We see in this passage that it's not just a historical account, but here is our God come back to dwell among his people. That here is our God who is going to redeem us and save us from our sins and from being exiled from your presence, who will bring about the new creation, who is making all things new, taking individuals who are dead in their sin and, and, and bringing them to life and making them new. 
I pray that when we think about Christmas, that it will continually put in awe of what you have done for us, that there are cosmic implications to the fact that you were born. Lord, I pray that if there are any who hear these words who do not know you, who have not seen the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus, that you would open their eyes and that they would actually have a reason to celebrate Christmas. We ask you to help us be conscious as we celebrate Christmas with friends and family, that we are conscious that the King has returned and he now sits on his throne and reigns over the entire universe. To him be all the glory forever and ever. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.